Good morning, children who are with us through the service this morning. Uh, I know that can be hard, uh, but listen to your parents. Um, I'll try to engage you throughout the sermon. Uh, and if the parents, if they get a little bit of wiggles, just know that's just a reminder of God's blessing to us. Children are a heritage from the Lord. So let's open to the book of Galatians this morning. Galatians chapter 2, where we are continuing our series. We love you, Levi. We love you. And we really love Elise for helping Galatians chapter 2 is where we are, are picking up in our series this morning. And we are going to read verses 15 through 21. 15 through 21. Once everybody's there, I will begin. All right. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we particularly this morning want to thank you for this truth, this promise that we are justified by faith in your son, Jesus, not according to our works, not according to what we do, but according to what you have done already for us. Help us to rest in that truth this morning, and we ask that your spirit would go with us, that would carry these words, that it would convict our hearts and transform our lives. I pray this morning that the sermon that is heard would be far better than the sermon that is preached. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paxton, I forgot my water. Would you mind bringing that up to me? Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> Gotta have this. Gotta have this. It was about um, probably three or four years ago that I was having a conversation with a, a Navy coworker uh, at the Navy job on the weekend. Um, and somebody I knew just a little bit, but I also knew him because he was somebody who sent his kids uh, to the preschool at Overland Hills Church. And so we ran into each other and we, we got to talking about the preschool. And he was telling me about how much he appreciated it, how great the teachers were, uh, how much his kids just loved going um, each day. But then he stopped and he said, you know, I, I do have one piece of feedback that I really need to share with you. And I said, oh, that's, that's good. We, we love feedback. Tell us how we can improve, how we can do better. He goes, 
You know, like when you have those family events where everybody comes together and, and the youth pastor kind of, he has that time where he gathers all the children around and they have that little Bible lesson. I said, yeah, I know. I said, you don't, you don't think we should do that? You don't like that? He goes, no, it's, it's not that. It's just, you know, every time he tells the kids that they are sinners, I really don't think he should be telling kids that they're sinners. And it kind of caught me off guard, although knowing him a little more and reflecting back on it, I'm not too surprised by that, uh, by that question. But he told me, I said, well, why is that? Why, why don't you think we should tell them that they're sinners? And he said, well, kids, you know, at this age, they're so innocent and they're so fragile. And I think what they need to be told, I don't know why you guys are laughing. I didn't think I would listen laughter here. If he listens to this, I'm going to be in big trouble. But, but he said, I think that what they need to be told is that they are accepted by God just as they are. They need to be told the positive things. We don't want to tell them what's wrong with them. We want them to know that they are right with God. And the more that I began to think about this, um, I realized that's, that's a perfectly uh, expected response of somebody who does not understand justification by faith. Because what everyone is longing for, and what he's longing for for his kids, is that they would have an assurance that they would know that they are right with God. I think probably some of you have encountered somebody who, or maybe you yourself, going through a particular struggle in life, and, and you've been away from God. You've kind of fallen uh, off the path a little bit, and you, and you say, or somebody says to you, I just need to get right with God. And usually that means I need to get back into church. I just need to get right with God. I think Hindus and Buddhists with their understanding of karma. I think Muslims with their attempts to, to, to follow the five pillars. I think even atheists want to know at the end of the day that they are right with God. You're saying, well, atheist, he doesn't believe in God. Well, he has set himself up as God and he wants to know that he is right with himself. All of us want to be assured that we are right with God. Well, what is it that makes one right with God? How do I get right with God? That's really what this passage is all about this morning. What makes one right with God? So Paul now, he's transitioning into kind of this meaty doctrinal section of the letter. He's kind of given a testimony to confirm that he truly is an apostle, that he received his message from Jesus Christ himself, that this is the true gospel that he's preaching. He's called Peter out because Peter has kind of fallen out into fear and thinking like, well, I know that's what the gospel is, but these Jewish people over here are saying that we shouldn't associate with Gentiles until they become just like, that, just like us. And now he's transitioning to explain the crux of the matter, to explain this concept of justification by faith. How is anyone justified before God? Now, kids, eyes up here. Eyes up here. Oh, good. That was good. Repeat this word after me. Justified. 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 Before you leave this morning, you are going to have a test. You're going to have a quiz. And you're going to have to tell me what this word means to be justified. Now, don't worry. I'm going to teach you as we move along. But I'll leave that for just a little bit. Grown-ups, you are no less off the hook. You need to make clear before you leave this morning that you understand what it means to be justified and whether you are justified or not. 
Charles Simeon, a famous pastor from a couple centuries ago, said that justification by faith alone is the hinge upon which the whole of Christianity turns. That's how important this doctrine is. The hinge upon which the whole of Christianity turns. And my favorite quote about justification from Martin Luther, he said, every week I preach justification to my people because every week they forget it. And I want to say yes 1,000 times over because I understand what he's talking about. That Even for those of us who have it up here, we could probably articulate justification by faith. I think if we're being honest, most of us would admit that on a day-to-day -day basis, we will feel more or less accepted by God, approved by God based on our performance. This, this is something that still plagues me to this day. So we get to the end of the day and we're reflecting back on how we did and we think, Okay, I donated to that, to that charity uh, when the cashier asked me if I wanted to round up on the dollar. Check. Uh, I helped a stranger in need. Check. I didn't lose my temper all day. Check. Even in traffic. Double check. I did my quiet time this morning. I prayed with my kids before going to bed. I shared the gospel. That would get you like 500 bonus checks and cover you for the next two weeks. I think that's how we, we tend to act, even though we know we're justified by faith in Jesus. The opposite is also true when we mess things up, all the checks against ourselves. I have this, this very vivid memory from first grade. First grade. So some of you first graders in the room, you can relate to this. How many of you uh, have been baptized? Been baptized, okay. I was baptized on a Sunday, as most people are, the very next Monday, I'm sitting at my desk in first grade and the teacher says, I've got to step out of the room, work quietly on your homework. I remember like this was yesterday. She leaves the room and immediately I get out of my seat and start stirring the class up, joking around, throwing things at each other. And it's one of those moments where she walks back in the room and it's like complete disarray, but all of a sudden it goes like quiet all of a sudden. And people start pointing the fingers at me. Well, Davy did this, Davy did that. And, I, and she says, is, Davy, is that true? And I said, no, it's, it's not true. I was, I was here alone. And all of a sudden, guess what happened? The memory of the day before, standing up in front of the whole congregation and saying, old Davy is gone. This is new Davy. I am in Christ. I am alive in Christ. I am a follower of Christ. It floods back in my mind and I say, oh, I have just failed God. I have let him down. Why would he want me on his team anymore if this is the way that I'm going to act? I'm glad that that has stayed with me for such a long time. It's similar to what Luther said. We need to preach justification by faith constantly because we are so prone to forget it. Last week, as I said, we saw how Peter forgot it. Peter knew he was justified by faith in Christ, but he forgot it and withdrew back from fellowship to the Gentiles because they were not Jewish like himself. And Paul rightly called him out and said, you are not acting in step with the truth of the gospel. You are denying the freedom to those God has called you to bring the gospel to. He says, how can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the end of our section last week. When you, a Jew, are living like a Gentile, denying them the freedom that he had been granted in Christ. And so now we pick up here with Paul saying, we ourselves, in verse 15, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now what Paul is doing here, he's, 
He's, actually, he's not thumbing his nose at the Gentiles. He's not saying, I'm not, a, I'm not a Gentile like them. He's actually playing into the way that they thought about Gentiles. That's how he's using this term Gentile sinners, as if to say, the Jewish people are chosen by God and you regard everybody else as just a bunch of heathen sinners. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, I'm a Jew. I'm not one of those Gentile sinners that you're so much better than, so much more superior than. And yet, guess what? I know that my hope comes from the exact same place that their hope comes from, that I'm justified by faith in Christ. He says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so we have also, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's really the bolded, all caps theme message of this section this morning. Every single person, Jew, non-Jew, is justified only by faith in Jesus, only by entrusting their lives to Jesus Christ. So kids, I said, you have to tell me what it means to be justified. We're going to define this this morning. What does it mean to be justified? This is one of those billion-dollar words in the scriptures, a word which we as Christians absolutely must be clear on. And we must be clear on it so that we can make justification clear to others. The goal of sharing the gospel, the goal of evangelism, should be to make justification by faith clear to everyone we talk to. So if you were to look at this word, if you were to x-ray it and see the Greek standing beneath it, what you would find is the word righteousness. The root word righteousness is where we get our verb justified from. To be justified, kids, listen, to be justified means to be declared righteous. Can you say that? To be justified means to be declared righteous. One more time. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It's like in a courtroom. If I was the judge up here and you, and you had come before me charged of some crime, and I've heard the case and I get to the end of the case and I've heard from the witnesses and I've heard from the lawyers, and I look at you and I say, not guilty, not guilty, innocent, acquitted, freed from the penalty of the law, free to go about your life, to be declared by the ultimate judge, be declared by God, not guilty, to be declared righteous. In Romans, the book of Romans, which is a 16-chapter book in our English language, is 16, 16 chapters in Romans, it's kind of like an extended version of Galatians. Think of Galatians like many Romans. Uh, Colossians is like many Ephesians. Galatians is like many Romans. Uh, in Romans, Paul is going to remind us, Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous. This is actually according to Old Testament, to Scripture. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. No one is righteous. So if you're ever in a conversation with somebody and they're telling you that their hope for heaven, their hope for eternal life is in the good that they do, you can say, okay, that's great, but if you believe the Bible, it says something different. It says no one is good. It says no one is righteous. Jesus would even say to, the, good, uh, to the, the rich young man who said, good teacher, he said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. 
Of course, he was God himself standing there, and he wanted the guy to recognize that. But there is no one good. There is no one righteous by, but God. What are we supposed to do? Our biggest problem is that God is righteous and we are not. And not only that, but the wages of this unrighteousness, the wages of our sin, we're told, is death. The penalty of this unrighteousness is death. So we need help. We need someone to fix our greatest problem. Not being able to justify ourselves, we need someone to justify us. We need someone to declare us righteous when we are not. So before I move on, I want to go on and go into a little more depth, fleshing out the, the implications, the, the full implications of what it means to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. I want us to understand the, the glory and the beauty of everything we've been given when we trust entrust our lives to Christ. So I've already told you that justification is a declaration. If you're following in your notes, you'll have these declaration, new creation, restoration, sure foundation to help you, to help you learn this concept. Uh, justification is a declaration. I, I was taught when I was a little kid that to understand justified, think of it like this. Justified means just as if I'd, anybody ever heard that? Just as if I'd never sinned at all. Which I think is a great way to, to remember it, as long as you remember that you did sin, and somebody did actually have to deal with that sin, and that was Jesus on the cross. But it's as if God declares your sins are no longer counted against you. You are righteous. You have been made clean. You have been cleansed by the blood of the cross. And this justification implies now that we are a new creation. We are no longer the old person, the old self. If we were to just understand justification as just as if I'd never sinned, and so now all my sins are gone, and now I can go on living life as I please, we would sell ourselves far, far short. Because if we only think of justification in the sense that our sins have been erased, that our dirty clothes have been removed, then we will miss out on understanding that we are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's not just that we have had the sins removed, it's that we have been positively clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And we are only justified because Christ now lives in us. When you entrust your life to Christ, you are justified because when God looks at you, he no longer sees you. He no longer sees the old man. When he looks at you, instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ. We learn this even written 800 years before Christ came in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Just picture that for a second. All of you who are in Christ this morning have been clothed with a robe of righteousness. You are no longer your old self. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us, For our sake, he made him, so God made Jesus, to be sin. He put, he put our sins on him, who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our righteousness is wholly bound up in the fact that we are now no longer ourselves, but we are fully in Christ. This also results in in a restoration. 
an absolute and sure, complete, eternal restoration of fellowship with our Father, who we've been separated and alienated from because of our sin. You see, our unrighteousness, our sin has caused this great unbridgeable canyon between God and man. But in Jesus, there is now a bridge, the cross, a bridge to fellowship with the Father once again. Have any of you ever seen that illustration where you've got God on one side and you've got us on the other in the middle of sin? There's no way you can get across that unless Christ were to lay down his life for you and through the cross you now have fellowship with the Father. It gives us this confidence in our restoration of fellowship. Finally, it provides us with a sure foundation. It means our hope is no longer according to what we can do for God. Our hope is only in what Christ has done for us. That the foundation for our relationship with God, the foundation for our hope of eternal life with him is in Christ alone. I think we're going to sing in Christ alone. In a few minutes, what we're going to do together here at this table is we are going to bring whatever it is we feel has come between God and us. And we are going to take the bread and eat and remember his body broken for us. We're going to take the cup and drink and remember his shed blood on the cross for us. Trusting in Jesus, not our performance, not in how bad we've been, but trusting in Jesus alone as our firm foundation. The Judaizers, they don't understand all of this quite yet. They're still trying to work this out in their minds, the implications of of, of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection and what this means for these new people called Christians. They're still looking to their works to justify. They're still looking to their works to determine their right standing before God. And even more so, they are afraid. They are very afraid of everything that could go wrong if people are told, instead of keeping this long list of rules, instead, you just simply need to entrust your lives to Christ. Doesn't that open up the possibility for like this unrestrained, lawless, wild, rebellious living? Doesn't that just open up the door for everybody to act like a bunch of Gentile sinners? I mean, if God has already forgiven us in Christ, why not just spend the rest of our lives living it up however we please? And that's the objection that Paul is going to take up in the second half of this passage this morning, starting in verse 17. He says, but if our endeavor... If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. In other words, if it's Christ alone that forgives and there's no longer any need to to keep the law, we're found to be just a bunch of Gentile sinners like everyone else. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Is he encouraging us to a life of lawlessness? What does Paul say? Certainly not. Certainly not. There's, there's sort of two philosophies that Paul has to deal with here in Galatians. And we see the same is true in Romans. Two philosophies that he's countering at the same time. And those two are legalism, and kids, a trillion dollar word this morning that you're going to know before you leave, antinomianism. Antinomian. I thought about that, like, is it really necessary to bring a word like that into the sermon? And I thought, yes, 
It absolutely is. I want you guys to know the word antinomianism because it is so helpful for articulating how it is that in Christ it is an impossibility to live a life that is contrary to his command. So legalism is the philosophy that these Judaizers are preaching to the, to the Gentiles. Or, uh, yeah, they're preaching to the Gentiles. And that is simply, you probably know legalism. Legalism, I would define it like this. An attempt to add anything to the finished work of Christ. An attempt to add anything for salvation to the finished work of Christ. It's to trust in anything other than Christ and his finished work for one's right standing before God. It is to trust not in Christ alone, but in ourselves, maybe plus Christ. That's legalism. Antinomianism now is what the, the Judaizers fear is going to happen if people adopt this gospel that Paul is going around preaching. Antinomianism simply means against the law. Anti, against, you know that? Law, namos, meaning law, against the law. This is what the legalists feared. Antinomianism is a, a way of thinking that says, because we're saved by faith and not by works of the law, then now we can just do whatever we want because God will forgive us. In Romans uh, chapter 6, Paul is going to answer the objection like this. He says, should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? Because the, the more I sin, the more it just magnifies the grace of God in my life, right? Shouldn't we just do that? And both times we see it here and we see it again in Romans 6. He's going to answer the objection the same way with one of his most forceful expressions in all of Scripture. Certainly not. It's the same expression in Romans 6.1, sometimes translated, may it never be, King James, God forbid. No, no, this can't happen. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why this can't happen. He's saying, does justification make Christ a servant of sin? Should we, should we go on sinning that, that grace may abound? And Paul says it, Paul's going to answer it like this. Paul says, think of it this way. If I rebuild what I tore down, if I rebuild what I tore down, what's he talking about there? If you picture Paul kind of just uh, uh, in, in keeping the law, he's taking these blocks and he's just kind of stacking them one on top of another, on top of another. This is what keeping the law is like hoping that if he stacks enough blocks on top of each other, eventually he will earn his way to God. If I rebuild what I tore down, then I'm going to prove myself that I'm a transgressor. I'm going to prove by stacking block after block after block that because of my sin and my inability to keep the law, there's now cracks in the foundation and the blocks are falling apart everywhere. I'm going to prove that there is no way I can actually reach God. There's no way I can earn eternal life if I'm trying to do it by keeping the law. All of you can try to be a good person. You can set out your life to say, I'm going to live the most flawless life. What would Jesus do? I'm just going to do whatever Jesus did all day long. And what you will find out is it's impossible. It's impossible because the sin is still living inside you. In verse 19, I think what may be one of the most confusing Verses, he says, for through the law, I died to the law. What does that mean? For through the law, I died to the law. Well, you see, if keeping the law is your hope, and you may say, well, I'm not a Jewish person, I don't need to keep the law. But 
if working your way to heaven is your hope, and we understand that no one is going to ever do that perfectly, and that God's standard is perfection, it says, perfection, it says in James, if anyone keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point, he's guilty of breaking the whole thing. You just start with the Ten Commandments. Try to obey the Ten Commandments. You will fail. And if you don't think you've failed, come talk to me and I will tell you about how you have failed to keep the Ten Commandments. But you set out on this course and eventually you're going to come to a point where you either completely despair and you give up all hope together because God says there's no one good but him. Well, then I'm not good. I might as well just give up on the whole thing. Or you're going to try to keep maintaining the illusion that you're going to get to heaven on your own. When we understand that no one has ever kept the law according to God's standard of righteousness, except one, no one has ever kept his law perfectly, we realize that we need something better. We need something far better than ourselves. We have to look outside of ourselves for help beyond what we have to offer God. Therefore, the law is going to teach us, and we're going to talk about this later in Galatians, the law is going to teach us over and over again how much we need a Savior. The whole point of the law, the whole point of the law throughout the Old Testament is to teach the Israelites, is to teach us how much we need help, we need a Savior to save us from this condition we cannot save ourselves. So Paul is saying that through trying to keep the law and continually falling short, he came to see that the law was never going to save him. He died to the law. He died to living according to that system. He had to die in order to see his need for Christ. He had to die. Which I think brings us to one of the most powerful and mystifying word pictures in all of the Bible. Some of you have likely memorized Galatians 2.20. And if you haven't memorized Galatians 2.20, guess what? You now have more homework. Memorize Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is his answer to this, this question of like, well, aren't you just going to be a Gentile sinner if it's only through faith, if it's through faith in Christ? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified. Just think about that. Have you been crucified? I have been crucified with Christ. Paul is explaining to the Galatians why it is impossible for Christians to just throw out righteous living altogether when you have been crucified with Christ. And friends, I want you to know that being crucified with Christ is not an option for a Christian. I'm going to say that again. Being crucified with Christ is not an option for a Christian. It is the reality for all Christians. It is the reality for all who are truly in Christ. Remember this, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Don't be deceived. There is no such thing as an uncrucified Christian. 
There is no such thing as an uncrucified Christian. It's at the core of what it means to repent and trust, entrust our lives to Jesus. There's no such thing as a belief that justifies that is just merely belief up here. Remember, Satan believes that Jesus exists. Satan believes that Jesus died on a cross. Satan believes that Christ rose from the grave. Satan believes that he sits at the right hand of the throne of God and it terrifies him. But Satan will never say, I have been crucified with Christ. Satan will never say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now you begin to understand what it means to trust your life to Jesus. I can't stress this enough. To be justified means that you have been crucified. That it is no longer you living for you. What does the world tell us all the time today? You do you. For Christians, that's not an option. It's not you do you. It's only Christ in you. Christ in you, not you do you. If you're truly in Christ today, then this means that your former self has been crucified. That your former self was buried with him. That's why we do baptism, because it's the picture of the old man going down, being buried, and the new man being raised to walk in the newness of life in Christ. So you're no longer thinking, I'm now free to live as I please. No, you're thinking, I'm completely and utterly undone apart from Christ guiding me and leading me by his Holy Spirit in my life. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I don't want to go back to that old life of slavery. Friends, I'm doing no favors this morning if I'm giving you a false assurance when you are running headlong for hell indifferent to what Christ has done for you on the cross. To know that you are justified is to know that your old self has been crucified. And having been crucified with Christ, now being raised with Christ to live freely unto God, to be able to live unto God, it's a blessing. Free from the curse of the law and free as well from the power of sin in your life. So Paul goes on to say, I do not nullify the grace of God. To live in that way would be to nullify the grace of God, to act as if Christ didn't need to die in the first place. He says, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May our lives never say to another person, Christ died for no purpose. It's in light of knowing that Christ died for my sins once and for all, In light of knowing that, in light of knowing that, if I were to go on counting up my good deeds and measuring them against my sins, it would be to pretend as if his grace was non-existent. It would be to nullify the grace of God. Legalism, Legalism is to nullify the grace of God. At the same time, if I were to say I had been crucified with Christ and go on living my life as one completely comfortable with my sin, antinomianism, I would also be nullifying the grace of God in my life, denying the very purpose for which he died. And so we come to see that justification by any other way than faith in Christ would mean that Christ died in vain. But praise God, he did not die in vain. Praise God that he has given us a way to be justified before him through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection where Jesus overcame death 
for himself and for all who would trust in him. So I want to just come back to that conversation that I was having with this coworker about all those darn preschool sinners. <laughs> I began to probe, I began to ask more questions, and I said to him, well, have you ever thought about it like this? If that's true, if they're just accepted by God for who they are, then, then why did Jesus have to die? Why was all that necessary? Like, did God really need to go through with that if everybody's just good and we're all going to get to heaven in the end? And I think he said something like, well, it shows us what it means to love others. It shows us the ultimate act of, of sacrificial love. And I said, yes, but, but didn't, he, didn't he voluntarily die? Didn't he say, I came to give my life as a ransom for many? What is that? What is that all about? What did his death actually accomplish for you and me? If it's just to set an example, any number of people could have done that. There have been millions of martyr deaths, people dying in the place of another person throughout human history. Anyone could have done that. If we're all basically good people and God is a loving God, then why would he send his son into the world to die the death of the lowliest Roman criminal on a cross? But we know this to be true. We are not basically good. Those preschoolers there gathered around were not basically good. They were born, they were conceived in sin. And I know that's not a popular message for people to hear today, but it is the only message that's ever going to bring us the hope of salvation in Christ. Amen. We are not simply people who are needing just a little bit of a push in the right direction because we're, we're almost there, just need a little push. We are in need of a Savior who can take our place. We are in need of a Savior who could live the life that we could never live. We are in need of a Savior who could pay the penalty of the law that we could never pay. Who could die the death we could not die. And Romans 23, 23, and 24 puts it like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, a gift is not something to be earned. A gift is something we must receive freely by faith. And receive it, receiving it freely by faith is what it takes for us to be justified before a perfect and holy God. To put our trust wholly in Christ. And so I want to ask you, have you received this gift? Not have you received this gift and now, now you just need to do a bunch of more things to earn God's fear. Have you received this gift and are relying wholly on Christ's work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? This is your only hope in life. This is your only hope in death. Can you say that you have been crucified with Christ? Like Paul, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so I would plead with you and I would urge you this morning, if you have not understood this or if you simply don't know, that you would come to God this morning in faith and say, 
I am trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins. And I want to be crucified with Christ such that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Kids, most important thing you'll ever learn, what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous, and who is the only one who can justify you? Jesus Christ. 